Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. Antonio Capaldo worked in finance and management consultancy, what he calls the dark side, before returning to take over the family wine estate, Feudi di San Gregorio in Campania. Listen to us chat about the three local DOCGs, based on the historic Fiano, Greco and Alianico grapes, regions' volcanic soils, the influence of the Greeks, the Romans and the church, and why time is his hidden shareholder. Hi, Antonio, how are you? Hi, Tim, I'm fine. Thanks for having me. What about you? Uh, fantastic, thank you. And where are you? I'm actually in Rome today. So not at the winery? No, okay, not and- today I'm not at the winery. We have an old office in Rome, but uh, I, I was at the winery yesterday. Fantastic. And um, what sort of season have you had so far, 2023? It's a challenging season, to be honest, and we're increasingly facing challenging seasons. And uh, it was very rainy in the spring, which is, was quite unusual. And now we are fighting against the peronospora and in general diseases. No, uh, we, are, we are doing our best, but I think we have to get used to having no predictability in our growing seasons in the future. Yeah. I think it's a big problem. We might talk a bit later about climate change. I wanted to start by asking you a little bit about your early life because you were born in Rome, which is where, you're, where you are today, where you live as well, isn't it? Yeah, I was born in Rome. My father and my family, uh, before my father, they are from uh, Avellino, so the town where the winery is located in, uh, in, uh, not far from Naples. But he decided to study outside of his hometown, and so he moved to Turin, and then he moved back to Rome where he settled. He became a professor of economics. And then I was born, actually met my mother, and then I was born in Rome indeed, and uh, I grew up in Rome mostly mostly of my young days. And and tell us a little bit about the creation of Feudi uh, di San Gregorio, the winery, because you were, what, nine when your father and uncle created it? Yes, yes, I was nine. Uh, The the winery is nine years old, uh, you know, younger than me. And the the creation of Feudi di San Gregorio actually started from a tragedy, you know, as we had one of the most terrible earthquake in Italy in 1980 that devastated the whole region. And it's still considered today as a, you know, not particularly good to, to say that, but it's a benchmark for every earthquake that happens in Italy because one mm. was really one of the, of, the, of the worst. And the winery started with this idea of investing back, both from my father in particular and my uncle, investing back in their own town to create something meaningful, to create employment opportunities, to create visibility opportunities. And I think that this idea of renaissance of, uh, in a way, trying to bring back the great things about our area is something that was one of the reasons of the success of Ferdi mm. di San Gregorio. Mm. So your uncle and your father were wine drinkers rather than winemakers. They were economists, right? And business people. Yeah, yeah. They were both economists. They were more drinking than, uh, than actually really having a specific knowledge in winemaking. I think this gave them a fresh mind in order to try also to create new opportunities uh, from, you know, the labels to also the winemaking choices, the growth expertise from outside of our area, which didn't mean at all at any time we left our connection to the grounds and to our roots, 
but we try to interpret them in a, in a contemporary way. Look at our labels, look at the winery. And I think this fresh mindset towards our history and our legacy is also very important to understand our history. And, and you studied economics at university as well, didn't you? Um, like your father. And then you went into the world of international finance and, and management consultancy. You worked for McKinsey. You became a partner. And then as soon as you became a partner, you left, right? You went back to the winery. Had you always wanted to go back to the winery? Yeah, I hoped you could. You didn't mention my dark side, but actually <laughs> it's been a significant part of my life. Now, I, I actually, because of my family background, I started, I, I studied economics, then I worked in First of all, in M&A, investment banking, then I worked in management consulting. Uh, the idea was to do kind of a journey, uh, to learn, have a good method, to learn and to travel the world, and then doing something for myself. And I had this incredible opportunity to have this winery that was family-owned that gave me the opportunity to do that. So that's why in 2009, when I became a partner, I could immediately consider that part of the journey uh, finished and start mm. a new a new a new life in the wine world which i loved a lot as a drinker more than as a winemaker uh, but i could immediately start that uh, that life and within 20 days of leaving mckinsey you were back you were back in campania right yeah this was quite a shock you know the uh, leaving a place where i was traveling in, in every day was in a different city mm. going back to something very different but very challenging i mean the challenges are different but honestly uh, the wine world proved to be quite challenging, similarly <laughs> to a career in the, in the international management consulting. I mean, do you miss that life or not? Not at all. <laughs> not at all. I don't miss the ties, even if they don't wear ties anymore anyway. Uh, they're like, like Friday in the office all week. So even this has changed uh, the dress code. But no, I don't miss that. I think uh, I'm doing... Uh, I'm doing something very meaningful, or, or at least I try. And most importantly, uh, I, I love what what the wine, what is distinctive in wine. So the connection between the creation, the nature, and also the, the history and the traditions of the man. So I believe that wine is, I'm very lucky to work in this industry. Probably if I had to work in banking, it would not be the same. Uh, but I'm, I'm very, 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 very happy. And so I'm not missing it. But the money is better in banking and management consultancy, isn't it? Way better, way better. I mean, Philippine de Rothschild used to say, you know, that wine business is good after the first two centuries. And I think <laughs> she was right. It was uh, the piece of the book that my father gave me in order to, to handle my impatience. And I think it's true. I think wine uh, is, uh, is not about the money at the beginning. But then the good thing about wine is that it tends to be quite resilient. And when I say that, it of course, it's the connection to the land, but it's also that once you establish a brandy wine, uh, it tends to grow ra rather than being very volatile. No? And mm. I think this is a good thing about my, mm. my, my, my sector, wine. And it's very interesting, this comparison you made. I read an interview that you did saying that in finance, time is cost. In wine, it's value. Can you talk a little bit more about that, about, about the difference between those two types of time, as it were? Yeah, I think it's a good quote, Martin. I think it's a, it's, it's a, it's a good uh, simplification of a broader concept. No? A, in finance, uh, time is a, a deterministic factor. It's quite mechanical. You say, okay, every year I move this amount uh, back, and forward, uh, back and forth. This has a fixed cost that is captured by a rate. Uh, and it all looks very, very simple, quite mechanical, mathematical, I would say. 
in wine, I could experience a totally different story. I mean, it, nothing is uh, proportional or linear. Uh, some trends are really exponential. The expertise and the value that you can put through time in a bottle of wine or in a vine it's something that makes this really precious. So mm. time, in a way, is not something you need to fight against, like you do in, in finance, because you are incurring in a cost if you wait too long. On the contrary, in wine, you need to be patient. You need to wait, and you're going to find out that your expertise can follow, even my personal one, mm. can follow an exponential curve, mm. similarly to the memory that the vine can keep of the different weather uh, seasons that it experienced, similar to the quality of a great and fine wine over time. And another one of your very good quotes, I keep quoting good quotes at you, is you said that time is a hidden shareholder. It's your hidden shareholder when you own a winery. Just just extrapolate on that as well. Yeah, I think it's it's good because when, in particular growing up in management consulting or in economics in general, you know that you have a, a, a platea, a set of stakeholders that you need to satisfy. Now your employees, mm. your banks, your shareholders, uh, creditors, and then there is time. And honestly, I never thought of time as an hidden uh, shareholder or stakeholder. Mm. But actually, wine it is. Mm. You cannot be uh, convinced that something is working unless you wait a little time, unless you're sure that time is also satisfied. If you release a wine too early, it may be a great success, but then it catches up. You're going to be unsuccessful in the end because the wine is not going to prove the quality that you attach to it. So you may sell at the beginning, but then you have a big fire. Uh, similarly, uh, time is important to uh, to manage the different season. is is important also in the way you handle your employees. Uh, you don't you, you shouldn't expect people that you bring from the outside industry, which is something I love to do because I believe the contamination between wine and other realms is important to make really the wine industry grow. You can't expect them to be 100% efficient after three days. They need yeah. time to learn. And so you need to give yourself time, which is at the end of the day, is also a psychological thing. If you don't give yourself time, then you tend to make a lot of mistakes, which I did. So when I say that, personally, I experienced that lesson that if you don't give yourself time, you tend to do bad choices. Mm -hmm. And uh, as many, uh, probably I gave bad advice when I was in management <laughs> consulting, but surely I made bad decisions when I joined Wine without having this idea of patience in my yeah. mind. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that your approach to wine has been that of a, of a drinker, somebody who asks questions. You're obviously highly intelligent and you have this economic background as well, rather than a trained winemaker. Do you think that's helped you in a way as being almost a bit of an outsider? Yeah. First of all, I don't ask questions all the time when I'm drinking. Otherwise, I don't enjoy it. People don't want to drink with me anymore. But honestly, <laughs> I think this is uh, important. I mean, I didn't study winemaking, so I did not start it. Uh, when I was already 32 or 33, I decided to continue my approach, which is having an open mind, which is similar to what my father and my uncle did before. Having an open mind, asking questions, understanding uh, understanding what also other regions are doing, other producers are doing, without all the technical uh, infrastructure and also the technical expertise, which I don't have, but the technical infrastructure that sometimes prevents you to having an open approach things you know we need to cherish and protect our heritage and tradition in wine because this is key but also at the same time we need to keep an open mind and i think uh, i'm lucky and i'm also very lucky because i never thought that i have to drink my wines uh, more than the others and that my wines are better than the others i never think that they're just different uh, of course we do also comparison in particular if you have a specific appellation and you want to compare with others that's mm -hmm. normal 
but I never thought that the one is better than the other, and that's the aim. The aim is to express its own diversity. Yeah. And, uh, and it's not politically correct what I'm saying. It's really something that if you're a technician, I, I see my winemaker, uh, my agronomist and my winemaker, they take a bottle, they, they sip, and then they start doing analysis. And I think this is crazy. I don't care about that. I care about the connection that this wine creates in me. And more importantly, if you can drink the wine together with other people, the convivial, yeah. convivial effect. There are wines that are really impressive when you drink them, but then you don't finish the glass. Mm. There are wines that are impressive. But you don't share this emotion, these emotions with other people. This, for me, is not the idea of wine I have in mind. So by having this very uh, philosophical approach uh, to <laughs> what my wines should be, uh, this helps me not to get too technical. Then, of course, sometimes I'm a pain for the people that work with me because I say things that they don't understand what I'm referring to. But I try to, you know... Uh, joyful wines, for me, it's a concept that I always, and it doesn't have anything to do with how much expensive they are, mm. how much alcohol they get. Joyful and immediate wines is a concept that for me is key. Mm. And when I say I taste a wine that is not joyful, I say it doesn't bring me joy. And of course, the people look at me and they say, oh, what the hell is this saying? That's that's a bit my life. <laughs> no, I, well, I, I agree with you completely. Just tell us a little bit about where you are. I mean, not right now in Rome, but the, uh, where the winery is. It's in the Irpinia subregion of Campania, uh, and that's the region that takes its name from the city of Naples. Just tell us a little bit about about the climate, the influence of of, of the ocean or the Mediterranean Sea, uh, and also where you are, because it's not what people expect, is it? No, actually, it's a little bit surprising. We are a surprising South or a fake South, I would say. Um, I always think of Irpinia. Irpinia is this small area in the center of Campania. So we are 40 kilometers inland from Naples, enclosed by mountains. I always think of this region where you can find the three DOCGs, no? Fiano, Diavellino, Greco di Tufo, and Taurasi. I always think of, Campania, of Irpinia as a continental island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. So basically, you have the coast that is famous. Now you have the Amalfi Coast, then you have Naples, then you have the islands of Capri and Ischia. There you have the perfect weather for, you know, taking a sun bath. You, know, you have good, good sun, uh, very nice, um, very nice uh, uh, weather also in wintertime. When you move 40 kilometers inland, the situation changes. We have over 200 days of rain per year, 1,300 millimeters of rain, which is the double of Champagne of Bordeaux, highest in Italy. Mm. So it's, 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 it's surprising because the, the clouds tend to stay within the mountains that enclose the area. And the other thing that is peculiar, the elevation that I just mentioned, so all, our, all the vineyards we grow are above 400 meters, up to 800, 900 meters altitude. And the third thing is that we have a very a great diversity in soils. Hmm. We have from volcanic soils or mineral soils of sea origin, um, rather than volcanic origin. Then you have limestone, then you have chalk. You have many, many different soils. Which explain, which is a great key to success, because as many vari variables variables you may get in growing your vines, that's going to be better in your winery when you bring back the wine and you try to understand, you know, the potential diversity that you, you can express. Mm. The diversity of Irpinia is enormous. And then, last thing to mention, we have these incredible indigenous varietals. There are many in Campania. I think in Campania there are more than in all France. Uh, and in, in Irpinia, in particular, we have three, uh, Greco, 
Fiano and Alianico, that is the basis of the Taurasi DOCG. And the good thing is that they don't overlap. They never overlapped. It's not because the law said, the DOCG protocol said, you don't plant Fiano or Greco. It's because the farmers associated a specific varietal to a specific portion of land with specific soils. Mm. So we have an idea of terroir, antelitteram, I would say, that was always present in my area. Mm. I mean, Campania has a long history of growing grapes, even though its wines latterly have not been that famous. They've changed really since since you guys started in 1986. But just tell us a little bit about the Greek connection and the Roman connection and the connection with the church. I mean, how did the region develop as a wine-growing area? Yeah, we have to pay... Uh, when we talk about a story, we have to pay uh, two great tributes. One is to the to the um, to the ancient Greek and Romans, and the second is to the church. Mm. Now, uh, the first heritage, the Greek and Roman, they brought us our varietals. So historically, the Greek came down from Greece to Sicily up to Campania, and they brought their own varietals, mostly probably Greco and also probably Alianico, although there is some controversial uh, debate about whether it came from the Greek or from other origin. Then there were the Romans. The Romans, the area of Campania Felix was famous for the Romans because they were producing a lot of things from Campania, actually, back in time, olive oil, wine, and an average soldier of the Roman army could drink a liter of of wine per day. Imagine the money that wine producers were making at the time. And, uh, and then Fiano, Falangina, another variety of Campania, Biancolella, many other varieties of Campania emerged during the Roman time. And then we have the church, as you said. I mean, in all Italy, actually in all Europe, the varietals were brought by the, mostly the Romans, mm. even up in France. Mm. But then the preservation of the wine culture was ensured by the monks, the abbeys, the church, basically, throughout the old Middle, Middle, Middle Age. And in particular, in, Campa- in, in Ifpinia, we have two wonderful abbeys that uh, from the 11th century, they protected the native varietals, no? Greco, Fiano, Falangina, Aglianico. And the reason why we are called Feudi di San Gregorio, actually, Feudi means, feuds means owner, ownership of uh, estates, basically, of Gregory the Great, is that in the 7th century, there was this pope, Gregorio Magno, and he was very famous because he, was, he reorganized the church. And uh, under his pontificate, some of the, I don't want to say modern, but some of the less artisanal book of making wine making were already codified. And he used to make wine in many areas of Italy, including my area. So we decided to call ourselves Family San Gregorio to pay a tribute also to the second heritage. So, yeah, we are, a, it could be a little bit of a stereotype, now these two big heritage looking backwards. But it's actually in Campania, they cross paths very nicely. Uh, the Greek, the, the Romans, and the history of the church. Mm. And yet when you guys started in 1986, the region didn't have a particularly good reputation as a wine producing area. I think there were only six people bottling wine, weren't there? Yeah, but grape production was important. It was important before the philosopher, actually. At the end of the 19th century, there was a lot of grape production in the area. And in particular, when the philosopher attacked Many, a lot of bulk wine and grapes were sold north to northern producers up to Piedmont. There was even a railway bringing the bulk wine from my area to Piedmont. The, the issue is that then their industry failed to evolve from a just grape production or bulk wine production to really being a serious, you know, production of wine with brands, with appellation, with, you know, 
promotion, etc. So when we started in 86, there were only six bottlers in the area. We were number six, actually. And now there are 150. So we are catching up to our great history. Consider one thing, Tim, this uh, the first, actually the second in Europe and the first in Italy, Institute of Winemaking and, and Viticulture was actually created in Avellino in 1874. So there was an history of great production of viticulture. Uh, and we're catching up now in terms of winemaking because now there are over 150 wineries. And I think it's very promising because we could have a positive exchange about, you know, viticulture, how to handle challenges in viticulture, how to handle challenges in aging wines, uh, doing promotional projects together. I think there is no wine area that can just live on the shoulder of a, of a single producer. I think mm. having a community of producers of different sides mm. um, is key. Most of these producers came after us uh, in terms of time because they saw our example. Some of them, they came because they liked what they what we did. Some of them just because they didn't like what we did and they wanted to show a different aspect of the region that they thought our winery was not doing, was not in a way showing. And I think this is great because in a way or another, Ferdi San Gregorio, they all, they all say that the Ferdi San Gregorio growth uh, in the 90s was important for their motivation and ambition to start producing wine. And that's why today we are in a vibrant area with many producers. And I think we have great pages to, to, to write in the next uh, 20 years. Mm. And you said you've got these three DOCGs, and DOCG is the highest level of Italian wine, at least in, in theory. Just tell us a little bit about the difference between the three. Each is based on a grape variety, isn't it? So Fiano, Greco, and then Alianico. Yeah, each is based on a grape varietal, and each is based on a specific terroir. Mm. So you cannot plant Fiano where you plant Greco. There is only like a very small overlap between Fiano and Dallianico, but very, very small. Now, the three DOCGs are relatively small in terms of hectares. Now, and we start with the Fiano. Fiano is, overall, uh, is 550 hectares cultivated now, vineyards, similarly to Greco. Fiano is a varietal that comes from the Latin, differently from Greco. Uh, it, the name comes from the Latin word apianus, which meant that it was a, a grape varietal preferred by the bees because it's very sweet. Mm. And Fiano mostly grows on uh, the hills uh, and the soils are limestone, but also some chalk you can find as well. There are areas that are a little bit different. Mm. Uh, we have different sub, uh, sub zones with different, a little bit of different uh, expressions, but overall uh, Fiano is a very rich complex with a great structure wine, both in the nose and in the mouth, is quite rich. Uh, and also, it, it's nice because it always has, tends to have almost a roasted almond finish, which is also the reason why we don't do any occasion, nothing, because I think the complexity already comes from the varietal itself. Uh, Fiano is very resilient to diseases. Uh, I would say it's the dream varietal for every viticulture. Mm. Greco is quite the opposite. I mean, similarly in size, 500 hectares of uh, 500, 550 hectares of cultivated vineyards, very, very delicate varietal, Greek origin, very mm. delicate varietal, uh, very soft skin. It grows on uh, mostly on soils uh, full with minerals, in particular in the Tufo area. Greco di Tufo is because Tufo is the hometown, it's the center of the Appalachian. Fiano di Avellino, similarly. Fiano is the varietal, Avellino is the name of the town. Now, in Tufo, there is one of the largest sulfurous mines of Italy. And uh, the, the characteristics of Greco, this uh, almost dark note, uh, 
this, uh, uh, this complexity in the mouth that is much bigger than in the nose, sometimes the nose is pretty closed, is a very peculiar characteristic of Greco. It explains why, because of the, the soil composure, the, it doesn't retain water in the, in the, in the summer, so the, the vine has to suffer hard, reduces yield, reduces the size of the berry, uh, the color gets more concentrated, and the wine tends to be more, you know, it's kind of a fake red, you know, more horizontal than, more vertical, sorry, more vertical than horizontal. So that's a big difference between Fiano and Greco. They both enjoy one thing that is acidity, freshness is great amount. So they both have potential for longevity and uh, aging, but they are very different in the sense that Fiano is a very, there is an harmony between nose and mouth. It's, is a, I would say is a blockbuster white wine, while Greco is an outsider. Greco in particular and great vintages is something that you never tasted in your life. It's all in the mouth, super long. It can fight with Aglianico even in terms of uh, power in the mouth. And I'm not meaning alcohol, I'm meaning length, aftertaste, mineral aftertaste that doesn't come from volcanic uh, soil, but it comes from this minerality that is embedded because of the mines in the soil. The third is actually Taurasi DOCG. The name of the grape is Aglianico. Don't ask me why in this case they don't say Aglianico of Taurasi, they just say yeah. Taurasi, just because <laughs> Italian wine is quite complex. Yeah, to be honest, <laughs> you, need, uh, you need the 10 degrees to understand that. We make our life complicated and we make complicated the life for the people that want to taste our wines. But Taurasi is the name of a town. Uh, the, the vines start actually from Taurasi up to the hills, from 450 meters where Taurasi town is located, the vines grow, grow, grow up to Castelfranchi, Paternopoli, other towns that are at 800 meters. In Aglianico, to become a Taurasi has to, uh, has to uh, fill two, uh, you know, uh, two things. Basically, first is that you need, it needs to be an Aglianico in the Appalachian area. Secondly, it needs three years of aging, of which one year in oak. The tradition, you, oak, you can use whatever you want. The tradition is mostly large chestnut oak. Uh, now, increasingly, wineries are applying large Slavonian oak rather than barriques because mm. Aglianico is rich, is a varietal. Similarly to the other two, I said a lot of things, are be beautiful things about my varietals, not because I'm partisan, but because we are really rich in everything. So the men should disappear. You shouldn't show your muscles. You should use aging um, recipients that don't cover Mm. the fruit. And the yeah, they're neutral. Is, they're neutral in a way, aren't they? they the three of them, yeah. Neutral as possible. So that's why on yeah. the whites we don't use any oak. We just yeah. use stainless steel. On the red, on the Lianico, we mostly use large oak. It was not all the time like that, but now, luckily, we, you know, in a way we are living by our tradition, uh, yeah. which is important. And uh, we use large oak in order to preserve the, the power of Lianico. Lianico is a varietal that is powerful in everything from mm. alcohol to structure to tannins, but it's also capable of color, but it's also capable of an incredible elegance, mm. uh, thanks to the minerality freshness balance that you can find, in particular if you harvest at the right time, because it's mm. still a, the biggest challenge is that because we, they're all late harvest varietals. Mm. And if you harvest when the temperature is below zero, sometimes you tend to harvest a little bit earlier than what. It's really needed, no? And so the challenge is to be brave and courageous. Because mm. sometimes you you be picking Alianico what in November. Does that still happen? Yeah, I mean the first, the last uh, four vintages we ended at the end of October. 
But before, I remember, we were going up to 6th or 7th of November. Now, of course, everything is a bit anticipated, as you know, but still, we don't harvest uh, Fiano Greco and Yannico before October. Falangina, mm. we harvest earlier, but the other mm. three, we harvest in October, and we close, basically, the harvest season in Italy, together mm. with Valtellina. So we are among the latest to, to pick up our grapes. I mean, have you ever picked in the snow? No, no, in the snow, no, but uh, with the temperature below zero in the night, yes. Mm. And it's a challenge because you always risk that the berry, in a way, breaks down and you lose everything. So yeah. we cannot blame our farmers or even our workers when sometimes in the past, in particular, they were trying to anticipate that. And this is the challenge because if you anticipate on a varietal such as Alianico, you tend to have a green tannin. It doesn't, for, it doesn't forgive you mm. even if you wait 30 years. So you mm. really need to be brave. And uh, and it's not really technology, you know, it's the experience that is helping mm. and also the, the mindset. But climate change in our case is also helping a lot, surprisingly, mm. because the uh, harvest seasons are becoming much more regular. Of mm. course, I'm not saying it's good. Huh? I'm saying just that for us, over the past uh, four or five vintages, you taste wines that are, it's much get, much easier to get to the maturity of the mm. fruit of Alianico because of the... Yeah of the better conditions of the harvest season. Because I think you once said that Alianico is a great variety that doesn't give you a second chance. But maybe with climate change, it gives you a little bit more of a chance, does it? Yeah, I mean, it, basically you can wait without having to uh, risk to lose everything. You can mm. wait because the season you have, uh, in October, you easily have now temperature of 15 to 20 degrees in the day. Mm. I remember even in 2009, it was below 10 degrees during the day. So, it was, and it was raining. And then if it starts raining, then you don't get into the vineyard maybe for 10 days. So in 10 days time, you don't know what you're going to find out. So uh, it's quite scary if I think also on myself over the past 15 years, how the climate changed so drastically. Mm. But I'm saying that the byproduct in, in areas like mine, late harvest, a lot of rain, uh, very, very uh, tough temperature in the, in the fall, uh, this makes your life easier, but of course, this cannot last. Otherwise, we're going to harvest in August, and, and people that are harvesting today in August are not going to harvest at all. So I'm just saying that the latest uh, vintages are a bit more regular, mm. in, in particular mm. in October, which is key for us. Mm. How, how many wines do you make in total? Because you've got these three DOCG wines, and you have a, a you have a sort of super super Taurasi as well, don't you? Called Serpico. Which other wines do you make? How many other wines? Yeah. It, out of the three white varietals, so Greco, Fiano, and Falangina, we do two uh, white, whites of each, two wines of each. One is a single vineyard, and the second one is, you know, a classic, the classic wine. So we make Falangina, and the single vineyard is called Serocello. Then we do Greco di Tufo, and the single vineyard is called Cutizzi. And then we do Fiano di Avellino, and we do a single vineyard called Pietra Calda. Then we have on the Alianico, we have an Alianico that is unoaked, that is called Rubato. It's kind of an introduction to the Alianico. Uh, where you can see what I'm saying is that people expect Alianico to be massive, to be rustic. And actually, even without any oak, one year after the harvest, if, the, if you get the right maturation of the grape, the wine is super pleasant, super rich with a wonderful uh, fruit. And then we go with the Taurasi, and then we have two reserves, a single vineyard. One is called Taurasi Piano di Montevergine, and the second one is called Serpico. And Serpico is a in Alianico coming exclusively from Prefilosera, from Prefilosera vines, vines that are over, uh, with, let's say, almost 200 years old. 
Then we have a last wine that is called Patrimo, which is an intruder. It's an eight years old, 90 years old uh, Merlot vineyard that we produce as a single vineyard. Last thing is that uh, we also have a collection of small single vineyard batches called Feudi Studi. We do four for each appellation every year. These are mostly educational. So every year we do 12 wines, for Greco, for Fiano, for Alianicos, that we mostly keep at the winery, but they allow us to show the diversity of the different subterrains. And I believe in the future we are going to have more single vineyards coming up because something we, I didn't mention is that we have a very parcelled property. So even we have 300 hectares divided in 800 parcels. The potential for single vineyards is great and it's meaningful because soils are different, exposures are different, history of the vines is different. So we have a potential to do more single vineyards. So this Feudi Studi project is a way of investigating this potential and mm. we're going to bring probably to the to the consumers some of these wines in the future. I mean, you've mentioned these old vines. Campania has some of the oldest vines in the world and you're a great advocate for the qualities of old vines. And so what can you do to, to preserve them and, and promote their, their, their unique attributes? Yeah. The first thing is don't tear them down because they're not productive. No? And actually, this was not granted. I mean, it's a, still today, there are in areas, uh, in some areas of the world, they take them down because they're not particularly productive, because they belong to an old-fashioned viticulture that require a lot of labor uh, and workforce. In particular, in, if you think about Serpico Vineyard, these are pergola that are three meters tall. We need to harvest by ladders. Everything we need to do on the plant takes a lot of time. Uh, so first thing, don't tear them down. Second thing is actually uh, try to understand the genetic, you know, the genetic power of those. So we did a 20 years old study. It helped us a lot to, to select several biotypes that we plant in all our new vineyards. And so you recreate the diversity in your new vineyards. So studying them and make them not just a you know, kind of a celebrate or ambassador or a grape or whatever. No, they need to be at the center of your viticultural approach. You need to select the biotypes. You need to study that. And that's something we did. And then, of course, promoting the wines that come from them. We have the Serpico that is our top, uh, our top red. Uh, I think there is a lot of research that can be done on this, uh, on this because, you know, what, what's interesting is that both in terms of cultivation method and in terms of genetic biotypes, these proved to be way more resilient than the selected clones to any possible climate shock that we experienced over the past 10 years. And I'm not talking about the heat. I'm talking about the climate shock. So I'm talking about having crazy, like this year, crazy rain in the fall or temperature that are too hot in the winter or temperature that tend to be very, very hot in the summer. Even storms, they tend to be more resilient to that. The plant tends to regenerate Easy, more easily, and also these are these are varietals that uh, these are cultivation methods such as the pergola. The pergola is not particularly efficient because either you use ladders or even if it's smaller pergola, it's not easy to you cannot use any machine and it's not easy to handle that. But the good thing about these viticulture these old viticultural systems is that they tend to protect the grape much better to shocks. In particular, when it's too hot, because the leaves tend to cover the grape, but also when it rains a lot during the harvest season, because the humidity doesn't come up from the ground easily to a to a to a to a, to a gra- grape that is at least one meter above the level of the ground. So there are many things that actually they can teach us. So 
stop considering them as something to stay in a, in a museum of the winery and put them in the center of the stage, like honestly we do for the Ola Nyaniko production. I mean, you also own wineries in other Italian regions, certainly in Vulture, which is in, in Basilicata, Bulgari, in Tuscany, and, and Friuli. Um, this is part of your Tenuti Capaldo project, yeah? I just wonder, do you take a different approach in those regions uh, in terms of what you do in the vineyards and in the cellar, or are you applying the same precepts, the same ideas? Yeah, I mean, the, of course, the wineries are different. The approach is the same, which means separating as much as possible the different subplots, the different areas, the different soils, try to keep them separate as much as possible, even if then you have to blend them in. Mm. Uh, and then we have uh, we tend to hire people from the from the area. So you have mm. local people and then external people. So basically we have a our team of agronomists at the center that cover everything, but in every estate we have local people that have a very detailed and in-depth knowledge or what they, they have been doing. You know? So, but I think the most, uh, the, the approach that we, we, uh, we, we like, I mean, I think that what's more distinctive is try separate, 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 separation of parameters, separation of variables, studying every subplots. This is something we apply, uh, everywhere. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, you've got a Michelin starred restaurant in the winery at Ferdi San, uh, San Gregorio called Marena, yeah? Marena? How do you pronounce it? Marena or Marena? Marena, Marena. I'm not sure. Marena. I looked at the accent <laughs> the wrong way around. Are you a cook? I mean, is it something you'll enjoy? Do you like cooking? Mm, very basic, Tim. I'm sorry. No, no. The cooking is not really my thing. But uh, I always said I want to learn more, but uh, no. No, no. That's why we have a restaurant. No, I'm kidding. We had a restaurant <laughs> before. But actually, the good thing about all the people that are going to visit us and the Ola Winery is open every day and we are, we are very happy to welcome people to, to show them around. I think it's actually, I'm not cooking for them. So they have other opportunities that are way better than my own than my own cuisine. And you have a very strong interest in art, don't you? I mean, not just in the winery, but in you personally. Do you, do you like to paint or, or are you a collector? What's the interest? Yeah, I, I did this when I was younger, both music and painting. Uh, and I think on this, I can talk more about, about cuisine. Uh, I, I think there is a, it's an incredibly bright, vibrant connection between the world of wine and world of art. We spoke about time at the beginning of this conversation. I think there is something that connects wine and art a lot. It's a concept of time. You need, you need to live by your heritage, which is the past. You need to create something today, which is similar to what an artist creates, piece of work, a piece of art, and we create our wines. But we have to think about also the consumers, in our case, or the uh, viewers of tomorrow, mm. how they're going to interpret their heart. So in a way, an artist performs a journey through time of its own art. You know? And sometimes it takes a long time, similarly to what we discussed before, to get the right recognition from a, for an artist. Now, modestly, because of course we're talking about the different story, but when we try to produce our wines, we have to think about, we have to have the same approach. So I think the connection between wine and art is, uh, is, um, has a strong roots. One is, of course, we as a family, we like it. So it's great. It's quite natural. Secondly, it's good to vehiculate to the people that work in the winery, in particular, the people that are in production, that there is this connection, that they should think of themselves, not that they're doing wine for being sold, but they're doing pieces of art coming from the nature. Sometimes in wineries, in particular large wineries, like mine is not super large, but it's, I would say, medium size. 
the, the commercial area tends to overcome the production. You know, and that's totally, it's, it's an enormous mistake. So the, the artistic program that we have at Feudi also helped reminds, helps reminding people that work in production that they are at the center of the stage. And they should think of themselves as artists. And then thirdly, it's, a, it's an attraction. So we have these different artistic pieces inside the winery that are nice to see, that they have a strong connection. So they are, they are not just put there as a collection, but they are strictly connected to the winery because every piece of art is site-specific. And all the proceeds, we also do special edition bottles every time we invite an artist, and all the proceeds go to a foundation locally. So art is also part of our community program and we became Benefit Corporation, and then we became B Corp last year, uh, with art at the center of, the, yeah. of, this, of this program. Fantastic. Thank you. It's a great moment on which to finish this idea, this lovely connection between time and art and wine. I think it's one of the fascinating, the many fascinating things that's come out of this conversation. Antonio, thank you so much for spending uh, 45 minutes chatting to us, and I hope to see you very soon, either down in Italy, in the south of Italy, in Campania, or in London. Thank you very much, Tim. And thanks to all the people who are going to have the patience to listen to me. Thanks. Thanks. Thank, thank you. I don't know about you, but I'm glad Antonio left McKinsey all those years ago. What great insights into one of Italy's most exciting areas. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is Maxence Dulu of Ouyun in the Chinese province of Yunnan. Join me then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Tim Atkin, and on Instagram, at Tim Atkin MW. See you next week.